Newark beginning. Sussman, Bormana brings us this one. Before we talk about the episode, we got to talk about something else. I've actually spent some work and time trying to figure out the specifics, because we don't always have exact timelines on when episodes are being made. In some cases, that data exists, usually because there's uh, you know outtakes, or a particular episode had multiple revisions, and so there's timestamps on those documents. But we don't always know exactly when episodes are being made, only when episodes are aired. You know, that, that information's nice and accessible. But I was able to narrow this down. This episode came out, <clears throat> and while this episode was actually launching, they were doing the, the script work and the pre, the pre-work on set and design and all that of Inamir Darkly. Now, what's the relevance of that? This is when the show was canceled. Now, <laughs> what's uh, really messed up about this is the, so the stated reason was that this episode uh, was terrible. Nobody watched it. Worst, I mean, the viewings had, figures had been descending ever since about season five of TNG. I've talked about that before. But this episode was an all new low. And UPN at the time was like, you know what? We're just going to pull the plug and be done with it. Almost immediately after this, I believe two weeks after this, they already started selling the show into syndication to try and recoup some of their losses on the matter. Now, some of you may or may not be aware that Star Trek has an interesting history with syndication and has arguably gotten most of its best, uh, let's go with the word exposure when it comes to syndication. This happened with TOS rather definitively, arguably happened with some of the, the in-between period of TNG, DS9, and Voyager, definitely happened with Enterprise, ignoring anecdotal evidence, which I could list quite a few of, because I know several people who finally got to watch Enterprise in syndication, the syndication figures were actually pretty good, because Enterprise had started getting good, as we've already talked about. But they decided to pull the plug. Now, here's, here's the cool part. That's awful. It sucks. I wish we'd gotten Season 5. I wish they'd funded Season 5 properly. Now, those two facts both have to be there. If they'd funded Season 5 but cut the budget even more, that would actually be worse than not getting season five at all. But we didn't get that. But we did get lucky because the policy at the time, especially at UPN in particular, was when a show had the plug pulled, it was done. That's it. They stop airing it. Um, now, it's entirely possible that the episodes that had already been completed would still eventually come to light, but it's extremely likely that in a mirror darkly and everything after it would have never actually come out because they hadn't actually made those yet and the plug was pulled. But by some miracle, and I haven't been able to f- track down why, so please forgive me for the lack of information on this, but by some miracle, they decided to go ahead and let them finish their run. Season four was allowed to conclude in its entirety. This is actually interesting in its own right, since TOS faced a similar but kind of opposite problem because TOS faced cancellation from season one and then there was some trickery, which got season two. And then there was some, yeah, okay, which got season three. And there was almost a season four. But in each of those cases, thanks to the way television was made back in the day, once a season was greenlit, that was it. It was up. Total contrast here, where UPN reserved... And I, I keep saying UPN. I'm not certain other networks operated this way. That's why I'm saying this with kind of an asterisk. But I do know at least a couple other networks were totally willing to just pull the plug and end a show in the middle of its run. I'm sure you could think of a few shows about this era that had exactly that happen to them. 
So thankfully, we did manage to finish out Season 4. So, we have another one of those For the Fans cold open. You know, I didn't mean to put those facts side by side, but that is kind of ironic, isn't it? The lowest rated episode uh, of Trek history to date for the last, like, 15 years, I want to say. Something like that. Uh, and it, the cold open only works for people who have already been watching the show and already invested in it. Shran, not doing super well. That's that's great. Has to escape because there's a Telluride ship that's attacking. Interesting. Meanwhile, Hoshi is prepping Archer for how to deal with Tellarites. One of the ideas that Mr. Reloaded and I had with the Trek rewrite was to go ahead and make Hoshi the ambassador, the cultural person, the person who either briefs or directly interacts with alien races, making her far more of a front character and giving her a lot more to do. This episode, I actually forgot even, I forgot this scene existed when I came up with that idea, but this shows exactly why that idea is that way. She knows the language, she knows the people, and she knows how to prep. So her test run of Archer makes perfect sense and lines up neatly with the kind of role she probably should have had this whole time. Anyways, Tellarites, they like to argue, but that's being dismissive. That's a surface level fact. We don't like those. Um, what's the complex fact here? Unfortunately, we don't really know. I mean, because some of the books and some of the background material has kind of gone into Tellarite culture, but it really boils down to one of two broad possibilities. Possibility number one. The Tellarites really just enjoy the social interaction of arguing. This is not hard to understand. Human beings enjoy arguing. Oh, not all of us, of course. But there's a lot of study and psychology that shows that there's a reason people are so quick to get into such volatile arguments, internet and otherwise, and have done so for uh, all of human history. There's an enjoyability people have about arguing. Now, to me, that's alien. That's insanity. I don't actually like arguing. Discussing, sure. I'm with a, a nice, reasoned discussion with someone. But an argument? Ugh, that's terrible. But the science does show, and the studies do show, that there is a legitimate uh, benefit to, therefore, a decent number of people. It also comes down to the nature of memes. I don't mean cat pictures and Jar Jar. I mean the, the more mimetic kind of nature of how culture functions and how ideas being spread thanks to strong emotional connection has to do with why ideas get further spread, thus leading to this concept of angry ideas, and thanks to the pre-existing emotional strong connection, those get spread much further and much farther. How many times have you ever had a thing where you see something and it's like this shocking news tidbit, and whether you believe it or not or think it or not, there's just this immediate, oh my god, that's terrible. That's horrible. They should be horribly punished. They should be killed and... Right? Just, there's that, it's not even a word. There's just that knee-jerk emotional reaction to it. That kind of shock value to it. And then you get angry about it, and then you rant about it. Oh, they should never be allowed to do this, blah, blah, blah. I admit with total shame that I used to be like that. I'm not actually going to tell you the specific circumstance, but I do remember the thing I got pissed off about. This was actually a while ago. And I looked into it afterwards, and I was completely wrong. And there was something just sort of stunning about that that just made me go, oh. And I, I mean, I'm not going to say that I never did it since, because it's never that easy, but I haven't done that in quite a while because I made the effort, because, the, God, that's just so messed up and so easy to manipulate, right? 
So this then gets across the idea. Perhaps the Tellarites simply enjoy the arguments themselves. Perhaps they just enjoy that experience, and it's something that is engaging for them, both personally and possibly literally chemically. There's another possibility, which is not actually mutually exclusive here, although it's kind of mutually exclusive. The Tellarites just could be open to the point of rudeness. You know, no filter. Literally no filter at all. Just completely speaking their mind about absolutely everything, even in ways that you shouldn't, arguably. And you see how these things are both mutually exclusive and not. On the one hand, they are mutually exclusive because sometimes you make up something to make an argument. You know, you just trolling. That's what's what they're called. I'm going to say something to deliberately provoke you, so you'll come back after me, right? But on the other hand, it's possible they just like to be open to the point where they do have these legitimate grievances with each other and then can enjoy the argumentativeness. Interesting food for thought. So... They talk about how humanity has no experience in interstellar affairs. This is one of the neat things about this arc. Are humans special? No. They're different. But they're not... This is not a humans are special. It's not. In contrast to the last episode, this actually makes perfect sense. Not Because, really, it's any race. Any species that was in humanity's position would have the same general perspective. They happen to be new. They're the new kids on the block, but they are they are in the block enough to be aware of the, the nearby neighbors, and the neighbors know about them. So they're not a complete unknown, where there's quite a few races where that would qualify. They have some presence, but they haven't been around long enough to get those nice, deep grudges going yet. That's key. I guarantee you. If this Sengoku Jedi, by the way, that's really coming to a head in this particular arc. If this Sengoku Jedi had continued, by the way, I could be wrong. I believe Sengoku Jedi literally means the period of the warring states. In case you're wondering why I keep using that phrase. <clears throat> it's possible that if this had just continued and Earth had just been another power, especially since they have somewhat distanced themselves from the Vulcans, that they would have earned grievances, new scars, new grudges, and they would have been just like any other power in the whirlpool. Food for thought. But they're new enough, and have little enough experience in interstellar affairs, that they can actually participate as a neutral power. Nationally speaking, this is a position of tremendous power. There have been many nations in real life that have used this exact type of position. I'm not going to name any names. You could probably name a few if you sit back and think about it, especially if you're a student of history, especially going back into like the 1400s, back into like the 800s, give or take. Because there's a lot of things that can make a nation relevant in the national scale, right? They can have tremendous resources or access to powerful trade lanes or just have a huge military or whatever, right? Maybe they're just brilliant or maybe they're more technologically advanced. Or maybe they happened to be a neutral party who two much larger, much bigger, much more powerful nations or kingdoms or whatever. I keep saying nations. It's actually an inaccurate term. I apologize for that. Political entities decided to go ahead and use that third power as neutral ground because neither really trusted the other, but the middle didn't really have a stake in either. Thus, they gained that reputation and the automatic support of the bigger powers and defense. Now those bigger powers are willing to go to bat for them. Why? Well, because they need that neutrality. They need to have that space going forward. And, of course, if anyone attacks that space, 
they get a free uh, carte blanche to just go hog wild on the person who attacked them. That's like the, the most open Cassus Belly possible. They can just storm right in, take whatever they want. And everyone knows that. So most people, most political entities, leave the neutral space alone. And thus the neutral space garners far more political weight, capital, and power than they otherwise would have by sheer virtue of being someone that is not involved. And, at the same time, is involved in everything. It's a unique position. It's fascinating. Sorry, the history geek in me is peeking out a little bit here. It's fascinating to think about, and that's kind of the position Earth is naturally sliding into. And it makes sense. Earth really is pathetic compared to these other powers. The Tellarites, Vulcans, and Andorians could honestly probably wipe EarthGov off the map if they wanted to. And, they, and that's the end of that. But because of this unique position, none of them want to risk that for fear of getting the the ire of the other major powers. And this is ignoring some of the other big dogs roaming around, like the Romulan Star Empire or the Klingons. Anywho. So, um, this is when uh, we get an interesting little tidbit. You know, there was there was this Tellarite ship that attacked us. It was... It was Weirdly maneuverable. Hmm. That's strange. There's also a good time to mention that uh, they only had 86 people on the Andorian escort vessel. Because it's an escort ship. It's just interesting to think about because at this point in history, most of the powers don't actually have the big big cruiser thing. You know, the, the automatic inclination science fiction has towards big ships, which is something that Star Trek itself would have a great deal of fascination with, usually with aliens of the week, but also with some of the established powers over time. It's just interesting to think about since so much of fiction leans on that, and yet Enterprise has so consistently not. I think the biggest ship we've seen so far, unless you count the weapon, is actually the Aquatic Zindi Cruiser. I could be wrong. Please forgive me if I'm incorrect, accurate. But it is still interesting to see this perspective. It also says something about the relative smallness of all the powers within what I refer to as the home sector. Home region might be a little bit better. You know, it's a step below quadrant, a step above sector. You know, it's just that home area. Anyways. So, Shran wants to go over and immediately kill Grawl. This is a good time to mention that Lee Ehrenberg played Grawl. And I wanted to comment on this, because he's another one of those recurring uh, guest stars that Star Trek likes to haul out. He's played... um, Three Ferengi before <laughs> in track history, uh, including uh, you know a couple others that don't really matter. Uh, Bach, specifically the season seven Bach, Damon Bach, except he wasn't Damon anymore, and the Ferengi uh, uh, Grawl. I, I feel like that's at least a deliberate inside joke because they're both pronounced and spelled the same way in Deep Space Nine, the Ferengi. And in Enterprise, the Tellarite. And it's the same actor. Anyways. <clears throat> so. Moving on. This is when we find out the ship was super maneuverable. Huh? And Shran responds to the fact that you're on my ship. Shran also comments... Uh, no, excuse me. The, the, the Tellarite, Grawl, comments, you know, you're telling me that one Tellarite ship managed to take out two Andorian vessels. There's no way in hell. Huh. 
It's amusing that Archer is more inclined to Shran and the Andorians, which makes perfect sense. We also see that Talus is back, and with the same actress. That's cool. Continuity. I'm with it. I'm with it. Connecting to the past. She's now with Shran, if you know what I mean. Apparently she didn't give him a choice in the matter. Something about that actually amuses me greatly. You're going to be with me. Uh, um, uh, okay. <laughs> but Shran mentions he doubts war is avoidable this time, and... I mean, it's easy to see why. These, this place is already a powder keg, and has already come close to exploding more than once. If you've been paying attention, and I've been trying to point out the threads as we go, this is something they've built up for quite some time. And almost all of Season 4, to some extent or another, has been laying tiny little bricks in preparation for this arc. While there are two major arcs after this one, this is arguably the arc of Season 4 right here. And could be perceived to be the last one, if you want to think of it in such a manner. The, the, the climactic finale, or the ultimate one, or whatever you want to call that. Unless you think of the final episode as the ultimate. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, the, An <clears throat> sorry, the Andorians attack, and they fire at the shield array, which leads to the shields being completely unaffected. Hum. You notice they keep putting these little bits of foreshadowing here. It's very clear something's off. But the moment the Andorian ship showed up to attack without communication, that's probably when the viewers who aren't even paying attention are like, okay, what the hell? This is also when Archer mentions how hard Earth is leaning into these particular peace talks. Now, I already discussed all this. Neutral nation, you know, neutral site, bigger powers, yada, yada, yada. But the most important aspect of this conversation in particular is that it is Earth doing this, not the Earth-Vulcan alliance. This is Earth by themselves doing this. This is important to EarthGov for many reasons, not the least of which being, well, they need to prove that they belong in the block, don't they? If Earth doesn't have a place at the table, well, then Earth doesn't have a place at the table, and they kind of want a place at the table. So this is how they're going to prove that, and they're going to prove that in the only way they can, because they don't have the muscle, and they don't have the resources, and they don't have the economic might, or the, or the political capital, or anything else. All they have is their ability to negotiate and be this neutral ground. This is actually critical for Earth's development going forwards, never mind the entire home region. I almost said home quadrant. Home region. <clears throat> Meanwhile, at the 23-minute mark, surprise, it's the Romulans. All right, was anybody shocked by that? Ignoring the fact that this was obviously established back in the Vulcan arc, who else is going to do something like this? This is an extensive, multifaceted false flag operation. Come on. Also, we see Brian Thompson. I've always liked him. I don't really have a good way of explaining why. He's just enjoyable. Like, he doesn't do big roles. I, I guess his X-Files role is probably one of his bigger roles, at least for the ones I'm aware of. But he does good stuff, and I like him. He plays Valdor here. We'll talk more about him later. Anyway, so we see the pilot totally immersed in the thing, in the control scheme. And we get the idea visually... So, yeah, there's a bridge, and yeah, there's the Romulans that are giving the orders, but all the actual commands are being done by one person hooked up into what is effectively a massive VR interface. That makes sense, actually. That kind of uh, extensive thing would probably be required in order to do the number of things a ship has to do with one person rather than with eight or nine, right? The whole bridge crew plus whoever's on auxiliary and engineering. So, yay. This is also when we find out this sucker has lots of emitters, lots of subspace uh, antennae, 
And, of course, bulkheads that block scans. Huh. It's also very maneuverable. Now, I had a whole discussion about this, which I'm going to just throw out the window, because this is probably the biggest plot hole in the entire episode. This ship has no real need of inertial dampening, except at the warp level, because if it went to warp without inertial dampening, it would destroy itself instantly. But it apparently has no need for inertial dampening normally, and in fact has it off, which they use to throw the people around. The problem with that is the physics don't agree. Multiple times, both visually and in dialogue, they indicate that this thing is extremely maneuverable, and it's implied it is so maneuverable because it doesn't have a crew and doesn't have to worry about things like, you know, people surviving a sheer turn that would, you know, absolutely crush the bones of the crew on board. But then later in the episode, they pull one of these evasive maneuvers, and all it does is kind of throw Trip and Reed kind of down the hallway, and they manage to avoid this by magnetizing their boots. Now, I'm sorry. First of all, they should be in broken bones territory. And second of all, if because they mentioned the inertial dampening is off, not just dampened, off. But second of all, the magnetic boots aren't going to help, really. All that's going to result in is a pair of magnetic boots and a shin bone sticking out of them while the rest of them is over there. I got nothing for this. This is a straight-up plot hole. I just wanted to comment on it as we're going through. I am reminded of something that Mass Effect actually did, which was some cool thing. The idea that the strength of the uh, the field, I can't remember what they call it, not the Mass Effect field, but the other one, uh, that the Reaper ships could actually project, allowed them to basically pull maneuvers and and have a density to them that other ships couldn't possibly match. Effectively, their shields were their greatest military strength, their, their greatest tactical edge, because they could just straight up ram other ships, and they could pull insane maneuvers that other ships literally can't without actually shearing the hull. It would have been cool if they did a similar thing here, but, you know, whatever, I just wanted to comment on it. Anyways, this is when you find out this thing is a prototype, is not ready for combat. Well, question, why is Archer not already sharing all this info with Grawl and Shran? It actually weirded me out that both were not on the bridge while he was investigating the alien ship that they demonstrably see is the one that attacked both of their vessels. He doesn't even share this with them until later when he's got Shran at gunpoint and is like, come on, let's go look at the data logs. Having him there on the bridge might have helped a little bit with the whole believability thing. It might have helped with the Talus thing, which we'll talk about next episode. Nevertheless, Archer is weird because he asks a question. He says, why would another race want to pick a fight with any of us? We haven't done anything to them. Why would they care? What's What I say is weird about this is that's a stupid statement. There's plenty of reasons to do this. Like, like there's probably at least a dozen reasons why people would want to mess with an unknown alien race. But then he immediately hits the nail on the head. This is someone stirring the whirlpool, trying to ensure that it remains a whirlpool, and at no point in time... Does anyone actually start unifying? The mere act of unification itself is the threat. It will be implied... I'm just going to give this away right now. It'll be implied or stated outright, I forget which, in future episodes that the Romulans have been doing this for a while. And that makes perfect sense. It also beautifully and neatly explains why the home region has been so volatile and why the Sengoku Jedi has existed for so long because it's been carefully maintained by an external power. Anywho, <clears throat> Talus then tries to seduce the Mako. 
this is a little bit eyebrow eye eye rolling. Not because of the you know the hey hey let's check this out. It is funny that the Mako is completely nonplussed about this. But then he lets Shran get the jump on him. And then rather than shooting them with his stun weapon or shouting for help or hitting the comm so that someone can hear the fight sounds, he just decides to go hand-to-hand with two people. And then he loses. So that's neat. Anyways, this leads to, you know, the thing kind of moving forward. Um, you'll notice the, the camera's bouncing quite a bit in this arc, and we'll continue to. We've got Trip and Tucker, we've got Shran and Talus. And then we've got, like, the main camera, which usually follows Archer, but in general follows the Enterprise crew. And it just kind of bounces between them a little bit. This leads to uh, the big reveal, the thing that we've already figured out already. This is a ship that can mostly hide itself. That's all that's really needed, admittedly. But you could see, and this is, I'll give the writing this, this is uniquely designed to be flawed. This is the kind of thing that will only really work until it doesn't, and it is in constant danger of failing. We'll talk more about that as it comes up in future episodes. After all, as long as someone only looks at simple facts, this is an effective false flag. The moment anyone looks at complex facts, we have a problem. Meanwhile, Tellerite shoots Talus for some reason. I really don't get the logic on that one. And they find the bridge! And it's empty. And then we see Romulus. What's nice is this is actually a shot. This is leftover footage from Nemesis. And I mentioned that because you're probably wondering, how the hell could they afford this? Well, they couldn't. (laughs) They've been recycling a lot of stuff. I haven't even been mentioning all the stuff they've been pulling in from, uh, you know, the TNG set uh, warehouse or the Insurrection or Nemesis stuff. They've been pulling in a whole bunch of stuff to try and shove prices down, which means a lot of prop reusage and a lot of shot reusage. But it works. I'm not going to complain. And we've been getting some good episodes out of it. <sighs> Such a damn shame. Next time, we will continue the Romulan arc. See you there. Is there a Romulan salute I should do instead? Do they have a salute? I know they've got the from TOS. Huah!